The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome. My name's Matthew Post. I'm the Associate Dean for the Brandeis Graduate School of Liberal Arts at the University of Dallas. It is my immense pleasure today to be interviewing J. Scott Lee on the occasion of the publication of his most recent book, Invention, The Art of Liberal Arts. I'd like to begin by saying a couple of words about Dr. Lee, who, uh, who's a colleague and friend, so I'm going to refer to him in this interview by his first, uh, well, by the name he usually goes by, which is Scott. Um, but just a, a few quick words about him. Um, he got his PhD at the University of Chicago. Uh, he's taught in core programs such as uh, at Temple University and St. Mary's College. And most importantly, uh, he is the co-founder and longtime executive director of the Association of Core Texts and Courses. Um, and I'll ask uh, Scott to talk a little bit about this initiative. But this was something that he started to help support liberal arts education in America. It's an extremely important organization and an incredible accomplishment. And his book, Invention, The Art of Liberal Arts, out now from Respondeo Books, um, is a collection of his reflections over a lifetime of fighting the good fight on behalf of liberal arts education, his reflections on working with educators and school leaders, and also just a reflection upon his own work, um, advancing and teaching the liberal arts. So thank you again very much, Scott, for being here with us today. Um, my first question for you, just to get us warmed up here, is to ask you, why did you start the Association of Cortex and Courses? Okay, Matt, well, thank you, needless to say, and, and thanks uh, to the Liberating Arts Program uh, for this, I'm, I'm honored. And delighted, and yes, uh, you know, uh, fair warning to anybody listening. Matt and I are longtime colleagues, so, um, uh, so, um, okay. So why start the uh, the organization that became the Association for Core Texts and Courses? I didn't have the original idea. That honor belongs to a man named Stephen Zelnick, uh, who was at the time the director of the Intellectual Heritage Program at Temple University, a two course sequence which all students took spanning the arts and sciences, uh, which was um, uh, 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 I was teaching in at the time, and I'd been fairly active in the program. So uh, Steve was kind of a reformed Marxist, and he, hadn't, uh, he wasn't so much a Marxist anymore, but he hadn't lost his zeal for organizing, and he'd gone to the AACNU, the AGLS, the AIS. These are all general liberal education um, professional associations then and now. And he didn't quite find any particular institution that suited his um, suited the IH program or uh, programs that uh, um, would be like IH. And he knew at least of one in the other in the Philadelphia area, which IH had helped to generate. So this is in the mid 90s. 
Um, and um, uh, having worked on expert projects in IH other than just teaching, he asked me if I was interested. Well, for both, well, really for career, professional, personal reasons, having to do with actually my father's own career, um, it took me one tenth of a second to say, yes, I'll do this um, when it was laid out, since it was going to be about uh, these, these wonderful core texts. Um, and that is how it got started. So we worked together for a number, uh, you know, a number of months. Uh, we wrote letters. Um, I called up people to get them to come. We set up a, an organizing conference, uh, 23 institutions from Canada, the United States, out all the way to Illinois, down into Virginia, um, uh, attended uh, community colleges, universities. So it was a, it was a pretty, pretty um, impressive first step. And there was an agreement to have that. The, ultimately, the, the uh, organizing statement was formed by um, all of us who had participated in, in that conference, who took an interest in wanting to make the organization go forward. And um, um, that resulted in an organization which I became, Steve became the president of, I became the executive director of, and I worked on that position for uh, 24 years and retired a, a couple of years ago. Wow. Wow, I mean, it's an incredible story. And um, so my, ne my, my next question for you about this is, uh, what were some of the key initiatives that you guys undertook over the years, initiatives that you think really represent what ACTC is about? Well, um, th there are a fair number here, so I won't try to go on and on, but um, uh, there are a fair number, I think, uh, which are important. Uh, conceptually, we wanted to go beyond the Western canon. So our mission statement included uh, texts from the West and other major cultural civilizations. Uh, we also knew that we had to reach out to minority cultures and, the, and women. So this was, as we put it then in 1994 or so, this is no longer your father's Oldsmobile. Um, the, uh, the, uh, so that was, that broadening was part of it. This, um, the second thing that was really um, um, important, I think, which we discovered as we went along, after um, the, at the second and third and fourth conference, we had people coming up to me and to others saying, I didn't know you existed. This is so wonderful. These were all people who didn't have a community to go to, a community of like-minded colleagues. And, they, and we can get into this if you want. They were all interested in, in, in inventing new cortex programs of some sort or other. Uh, some had identification with great books, some did not. That was part of the idea of expanding it. So we could have a real conversation of what belonged in programs and suited, most importantly, suited institutions. So that's the second big point. The, th um, the third big point uh, were the conferences themselves, uh, not just simply their annual, every association has an annual conference. Um, the, um, the, they were really constituted quite differently. First place, they were all interdisciplinary. Um, uh, there were interdisciplinary panels, and then there were, uh, there were uh, uh, science, social science, and arts and humanities panels. But beyond that, um, they, they, were they, were, um, they were designed to promote discussion. So the, probably the more innovative aspect of this was um, uh, I made the decision that they would be uh, that papers would be short, five pages, double-spaced. They'd concentrate on a particular core text, and we would sit around, you know, more or less seminar tables, um, and uh, and 
Yes, that helped to generate the discussion. Uh, people actually are pretty good at uh, learning how to tailor themselves. And so the discussion was about um, the text themselves, their interpretations, their use in the classroom, their use in a program, what the programs were like, that sort of thing. Uh, but all pretty much grounded, which was important in the text. And the same would be true of the plenary speakers. We would ask them to do that. Um, later on, we got better at this um, or uh, better at what we do. So we started to work on, and I, I developed and came up with the idea, which came out of research I'd been doing into institutions, of developing an ACTC liberal arts institute. And with that, we were able to get grants from the Mellon Foundation, um, the uh, National Endowment for the Humanities, a three-year grant on bridging the gap between uh, the sciences and humanities, a uh, two um, grants called Tradition and Innovation, um, which were which were used uh, uh, were supported by both Bradley and Teagle, and um, uh, most recently a Rejuvenating and Reinventing the Liberal Arts grant. Um, all of these. Uh, based on summer seminars with people coming back uh, both to the conference to the conference to discuss their program development. So it was um, uh, those would be the major initiatives, um, I think. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's the quick wrap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, uh, having had some involvement with ACTC myself, I know that you barely scratched the surface. As you said, it would take a long time to get into everything, but something I would even throw in myself, which you know, is that uh, many of the people that attend ACTC conferences have found it to be a real lifeline, right? And that, um, and again, I'm quoting them, you know, when I say this, but many people said that they found professional conferences had in many respects lost sight of the heart of the liberal arts. A lot of it was about very refined professional discussions that they did not feel were always fully connected to their work in the classroom or even in their communities. And they found that when they would come to an ACTC conference, rather than arguing these fine points with their colleagues, they found themselves reawakening their shared love of great works and talking about how to teach them and how to inspire wonder in their students. And, uh, and again, just to, to reemphasize this, just how important this was for helping people remain committed uh, to these programs and continuing to love these programs. And it sounds like, of course, based on what you said, also helping these programs to expand. Um, or even get started. Yeah, or um, get started. You know, Matt, Matt, you're a terrific spokesman for this kind of education. So um, you've done as well or better than I, and I, I can only say that what you just said was true. Um, people, would, uh, people would come and they would find that instead of you know the rather typical uh, crossfires that are um, uh, crossfire and that's always going on at disciplinary conferences, part and parcel of, of it. Um, what there was was a collegial interest in both the intellectual and pedagogical pursuits, the curricular pursuits that all of these programs were developing. There, there is an aspect about this which some uh, people, how to put this may or may not be aware of, or they're subconsciously aware of it. Obviously, in a sense, there is no discipline of the liberal arts, hmm. like there's a discipline of English or political science or physics or, and so forth. There's no such discipline. There are disciplines that, that make a claim to it. Education can make a claim to it. A certain strand of political science can make a claim to it. But the reality is that almost all these different disciplines contribute and build them these programs. And that, um, 
that aspect of listening to people outside your program with an intense interest in, uh, excuse me, outside your discipline, with an intense interest in trying to build something for the sake of your institution. That's what liberal arts education is. It's an institutional phenomenon. And um, we're blessed in the United States and, and to some degree now expanding around the world that this, these kinds of programs are becoming more and more appreciated um, and, and outrightly um, undertaken by uh, faculty around the globe. Yeah, well, that's very heartening to hear. Um, so I'm gonna, well, maybe build on that or maybe shift gears slightly with this question. Um, of course, people also say that uh, liberal arts education is not appreciated as much as it should be or it's under assault in various ways. And I'm wondering when you started ACTC was part of the thought there that there is a danger of it disappearing and therefore part of this organization is to make sure it doesn't disappear. So I'm gonna actually pair two questions here. So one question is, is that the case that you guys were worried about it disappearing? And if the answer is yes, uh, what are some of the arguments that you've been making at least up until now, right? And uh, we'll switch to the book in a second, but what are some of the arguments you've been making up until now to help advance the cause of liberal arts education or to defend it as a, as a worthwhile uh, form of education or really as you're saying, a, a kind of school culture ultimately? Okay, so I'm uh, answer this at least the way best way I can. Um, yes, there was a motive. One remembers there were culture wars, um, and and the culture wars seemed to die out in the about 2000, 2004 or five. But then they popped up again. So there's um. Uh, there certainly were attacks on these programs. There's no question about that. We don't, and and most most listeners will will know the participants, so we don't need to go into that. Um, the real question, as you put it, was uh, were these um, um, disappearing, reappearing? What was happening to them? And uh, the results, to be perfectly honest, um, and these are empirical results, were um, uh, kind of a mixed bag. I happened at the same time as I was doing, uh, helping to get ACTC started here, um, I worked as a primary investigator on a um, program, a fund for improvement of post-secondary education, which involved all, at first 66 institutions and later expanded to 83 institutions wow. um, on the evolution of core curricula from uh, or gen, I should say, excuse me, general education, the evolution of general education, if we want to um, say evolution development of general education from 1978 to 2002. Um, so uh, this was um, uh, a representative sample. It had surface validity of, of the kinds of institutions according to the Carnegie classifications. And what was interesting was that about 1978, general education, which then would involve courses like the core text programs. General education was kind of at its low ebb. And by 1996, we found that uh, general education had actually expanded into the curriculum. Uh, so also had the majors. So what was being squeezed to some degree were the electives. Okay. Um, but at the same time, what was happening is that there was some development of uh, core text, great books, uh, primary texts, uh, uh, transformative texts, 
uh, programs. And these, um, these programs oftentimes ended up uh, wanting to come and um, participate uh, in ACTC. I would say that fortunes ebb, you know, they wax and they wane on this. That's the truth. And, and I would say uh, probably we'll have to see what devastation COVID has done. Um, that's just not known yet. Uh, but um, uh, on the other hand, I'm happy to report that uh, Charlie Thomas, uh, a successor um, in, in the executive director position at ACTC has done a wonderful job this year of putting together a conference online. So um, uh, one more year, we'll probably all get together and, and we'll, uh, we'll uh, continue to try to help build programs, as I say, here and around the world. Oh, that's fantastic. And um, uh, a quick follow-up question to that. Are there any programs abroad in particular that you would highlight, you know, places where the audience might be surprised to know that there's a liberal arts uh, program in that country or in that city? Yeah, we were always committed uh, to working abroad. Um, the unquestionable, the most tragic case is Hong Kong. Hmm. Hong Kong was an extraordinarily vibrant city for general education, real inventiveness going on there, real, some things that you simply won't see here in the States. And I'll point in particular to the Chinese University of Hong Kong, um, good friends, uh, 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 Chen Fei Chung, Mei Yi Liang, Julie Chu, all uh, and many more, all involved in developing a program over the years, uh, which it combined Eastern and Western texts in ways that uh, perhaps, perhaps not always, some programs in the states find difficult. But they were starting, as it were, almost de novo. Uh, that program ran for ten or eleven years and is now facing a crackdown. Oh. So, um, and, and that will be the case in uh, most of the general education programs in Hong Kong. Um, there were programs also in, uh, uh, surprisingly in China, uh, I won't even name them, um, uh, which, was, uh, which uh, were uh, fl uh, flourishing um, in a kind of under the radar way, but they were doing very well. The, um, in, in Europe, interestingly enough, we had some people start to come over in 2012, I think it was, to the ACTC conference. And shortly thereafter, we worked with people in Europe uh, to uh, develop Cortex programs. Well, it turns out that had you asked uh, 20, 25 years ago, how many liberal arts colleges are there in Europe, you would have, the answer would have been two or three. Now there are about 25 or 30, and many of them have adopted Cortex programs. Um, and, and use them. Uh, uh, so that's been a very flourishing uh, uh, effort. Um, uh, Emma Cohen-Delera, uh, Jose Taralba, um, uh, Hanka Drampa all worked very hard on, um, on, uh, on uh, uh, building, uh, uh, building um, those programs. And then um, there have been sporadic efforts down in South America, both in Guatemala and Colombia. And uh, ACTC is working on that right now, I know. So um, it, um, it, the real view, I think a reasonable view, is that these programs have expanded in the world. If, if there's been shrinkage in the U.S., they've expanded outwards in the, in the world. Well, and those yeah. are arts programs. Yeah, well, I mean, we are, you know, I think we're all glad to hear that they're expanding in the world. But of course, it is sad to, to hear of them shrinking in the U.S. And I know that... Um, 
having been spent some time with people who have started or are growing liberal arts programs in Europe, they do sometimes comment on the irony that they see liberal arts as something that Americans took from Europe and that now Europeans are importing back from America um, and they have to go to the Americans to learn how to do it. Um, but also they're kind of puzzled because they, they think of this as such an incredible treasure and they see it shrinking in America and they think, wow, this is crazy. I mean, um, we fault ourselves for having neglected this. Um, why do you guys not see this extraordinary thing that you have? But um, perhaps through efforts such as your own and through the Liberating Arts podcast and others, hopefully we're gonna see a full rejuvenation of the liberal arts in America as well. Yeah, right now, um, it seems to me there is a, a, a nice flourishing of, um, of parallel organizations that are, you know, it, it indicates a, um, a, an enriching ecology of liberal arts education. I think that's extremely important. I really do. Well, and we're also seeing, as you're well aware, a growth of interest in liberal arts education at the K through 12 level as well, uh, which is uh, an exciting development. Well, you've been very central to much of that, so, or at least a good portion of it. So um, uh, by all means, keep up the good work because it, what it does is lays a foundation both with the students and with, uh, and with high school teachers and primary school teachers who then hope that their students will continue on in this kind of education. So the kind of education that only a university or college can offer. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Scott. So. Now I'd like to switch to talking about your book. And my first question there uh, concerns the fact that, you know, honestly, uh, as you and I have discussed before, I think the book uh, really advances uh, a novel way of understanding the liberal arts, even though it does draw on the tradition, but it gives uh, great pride of place to poetics. Um, and I'd like you to speak a little bit about what you think has been perhaps missing in our understanding of the liberal arts. Um, obviously as a way of approaching the novelty of what you're doing and why you think the approach that you advance in your book is so important. Well, I'd be glad to do that, Matt, but let's first say, what are some of the arguments that have been used to advance the liberal arts? Because that helps to set the context, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, and so um, I think uh, the most important one, one that's been dominant in most of the time that, not all, but most of the time I've been teaching is what I would call a, um, the character argument, the political, it's a political ethical argument um, centering, not exclusively, but centering usually on building the character of a citizen in a democracy. And the argument is, and there'll be lots of people who take objection to this, but for the sake of a short interview. The argument is that um, the Western heritage developed through its arts and sciences, but particularly through the um, enlightenment, a way in which, a way in which uh, democracy could flourish in countries. And then um, the value of the ancients is that they act as a kind of corrective for modern excesses if you will. Um, so it's a character building argument. Of, it can stretch over to religion and certainly become spiritual. Um, and I'd say that that's, that's been a way of viewing um, 
what are the texts, what is the cultural background, what is the civilizational background you need to be able to participate as a citizen, a young citizen coming out of college um, in, in a country that hopefully uh, supports democracy or in which there are at least people who want to support democracy. Um, I, I, I do think that there is another, um, uh, 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 well, I should say, I guess, a lot of the argument about that is traced probably to two sources if people are interested. Uh, there's the development of the so-called war courses and then Columbia's first, um, first uh, great books course. And then they, uh, uh, the other would uh, probably be the Straussian argument out of Chicago much later. Um, those, those would be the two lines where you would trace that um, very generally. But of course it's drawing on ultimately this kind of view into the past as a kind of corrective of modern excesses that ultimately draws on primarily on the Greeks. Um, and uh, uh, so the, the, second, the second strain, perhaps more frequently frowned in larger programs, but not hardly exclusively, is a kind of epistemic philosophic argument. It's about the arts and sciences and, and what, um, what knowledge is. And, and uh, ultimately, since the ethical argument thinks that one of the most important uh, um, questions is to is about examining your own life, um, it the philosophic argument will partake of that argument, Socratic after all, <laughs> and uh, and will um, and and will look at uh, the examined life. So these two tend to overlap, but they do have different emphases. And I would say that the political um, character argument, uh, the democracy argument is uh, uh, the most important, easily seen by people such as Nussbaum on, mm -hmm. writing on behalf of that. Okay, great, yeah. So those, so are, then... the, those are the two contexts um, for what I, uh, and an awful lot of ACTC programs use some form of this as their mission or statement. Um, uh, of goals, and the um, and I began to look at this, and uh, really, I began. I guess from the very start of ACTC, I, I I began to see this a bit differently, and I think I can relate this best through both my teaching and work in um, intellectual heritage. If you don't mind, it's a little oh yeah, please bit of a story, but yeah. So I had um, I'd come in as a uh, not quite inexperienced, but inexperienced enough uh, uh, professor. I had a Chicago education, but here I was a visiting assistant professor for seven years um, uh, at uh, Intellectual Heritage. And I began to teach in it. And the dominant mode of teaching these texts, uh, the first half was went up through Othello, <laughs> through, through, through the Renaissance. And then the, then the uh, rest went, went all the way to Martin Luther King. Um, and uh, it was a, a it was a core of texts across the arts and sciences. It's, it's important to understand this. So we had Gal, for example, we had Galileo and we had um, um, uh, uh, Darwin in it, just to, to move in that direction. Right. And uh, I was teaching the first semester and the dominant mode was to teach the ancient Greeks as Basically, political or ethical treatises, and to um, and that would include 
such texts as Antigone and mm. Oedipus Rex, uh, of course, Plato. And, um, and so I, um, so, and that tended to carry over into even say, maybe looking at the Quran, which was in there or, um, or uh, um, uh, Othello, as I mentioned earlier. And after a while, partly because some texts didn't readily fit into this ethical political mode, um, yes, you can teach uh, you can teach the starry messenger as as if it were politics, but it's fundamentally early science, and it, um, this is well worth examining in itself. Uh, partly because of that, and partly because I was asked to write a, uh, an essay for students on the um, poetics, I began to change my mind about how to look at these uh, texts and programs. So the essay on uh, the poetics came about in this way. The, the poetics had been cut out of the syllabus a number of years before I arrived. There were still some lingering tragedies <laughs> in, the, in the syllabus. And, and so it's, and there was some poetry. So it seemed like it might be a good idea to try to revisit um, uh, the um, poetics, but there was no room at the end. Um, the syllabus was booked. That's always the problem with these, with these courses. Um, and uh, again, Steve Zelnick had come up with the idea of having a guide. So I, I wrote, I argued that there should at least be a, a explanatory um, argument, a description of the poetics um, in this guide so that people might have some sense of distinctions that they could use when they're confronting these, um, these arts, these works of art. And um, uh, so I went ahead and wrote it. And th there were basically sort of two, um, two or three arguments that we should think about that were involved in the overall shape of the argument I presented to the students. First, that the poetics is about artful making. Uh, that's where it begins. And uh, where it happens to conclude is pretty interesting. And these were conclusions that really ended up driving how I began to see these programs in a different light. Um, the first is uh, towards the end of, of the poetics, there's an argument really about um, what I would call the freedom of making. Now this happens to involve um, uh, questions of, of how do you know something is reasonably well done? And the um, uh, Aristotle lays this out, but what he does is he differentiates his own effort from uh, Plato's and, and scientists of the time uh, by trying to show that really what matters is whatever the poet ended up bringing in for the specific function he or she wanted to accomplish, that's what you want to lay your eyes on. That's what you want to think about. And then, um, and then the, uh, the, the second argument was really kind of a consequence of the first. And this is when it really came to home to roost. It's obvious that you can look at almost all, all these texts and ask, how are they put together? What were they aiming at? Um, how, how well do they accomplish their function? All of these are good questions. They're good questions to ask about any text. And so it became clear to me at least, and, and there's support for this in the poetics, I won't go into it, that what Aristotle is really concerned about in the poetics are the possibilities that humans are making for themselves. And if you begin to expand that 
to beyond tragedy, well, then you really begin to see the power of these texts. Now, by and large, there's no question in my mind that everybody I know in ACTC or in the liberal arts world honors texts, but they are oftentimes seen um, as a means, say, to building character or as a means, say, to a history of ideas. And uh, ACTC is pluralistic and so am I, I don't want those to go away. But you asked what was missing and um, what Aristotle was concentrating on became known later in Roman terms, I think, in terms of invention. But he's concentrating on building things new that didn't exist beforehand, come into existence because of human agency. And that is characteristic of every single text in a core text program. So the questions become what's new and um, what's, what, what are we getting out of the past? What's new? Where are we going with this? What's opened up? And so that was, um, to me, after some thought, it's not that um, it's not that people wouldn't ask themselves such questions from time to time in programs. I think they probably would in most. But I think what um, interested them uh, was not the the power of uh, construction and the power of poetics in this very large expanded sense, um, but rather um, how these would say um, particularly shape this or that character or particularly shape this or that history of ideas, all of which I happen to think, of course, um, can be absorbed by this point of view. That's great, yeah, thank you. Um, and so follow up to that, um, and there's different ways you could tackle this question because one thing we haven't entirely done yet is gone full out and defined the liberal arts, which is tricky, right? And there's different definitions. Um, although I think that what you said before about looking at great works and different traditions, not just the Western tradition, and then the defenses, um, which if I remember correctly, would be character formation, citizen formation, looking at democracy, that's, that's one part of it. Curbing the dangerous tendencies of modernity, that's a second one. And then what you referred to as an epistemological thing or looking at Socratic inquiry, a third. And now we're adding this fourth idea of poetics or invention. And my question is following upon that is, how does the emphasis on poetics call on us to change how we think about the liberal arts? Okay, there's a lot in your question, so let me just. Yeah, sorry, I was trying to summarize the preceding discussion. <laughs> First off, I, I do want to modify. I think the Socratic business is really belongs to the character and ethics. It's philosophy as ethics or ethics as philosophy. I, I, I think that, but I do think that there's an, uh, a question of what are the bases of knowledge or what is knowledge that is, it really marks out a, a separate category of how you can organize and think about these things. And so I think that's important because then what you can do is you can say, well, what's the basis of what we know or what was known when these works were made and constructed? What did we begin what did we begin to know because they were constructed? Um, or you could argue, or you could say, uh, it, by teaching and learning these texts, you're 
not asking how to know, almost everybody does that. Um, you're, you're asking, what is it to know? Which is a really very different question. And then the poetic, part of the poetic answer then is, well, it isn't just to know how to make something, it's to know what the, what you're asking people to take in when you make something like this. What are you asking them to become involved in? What are you asking them to feel? What are you asking them to be able to learn to do for themselves, to make for themselves? That's the whole, con that's the whole beginning of that kind of process. There's a second thing that's correlative to it. The character, uh, it's one thing to have an ethical character. It's another thing to have a character of an artist. And there's no reason why ethics has to be dropped out of this or be thought of as secondary um, or any of that sort of thing. But it is something to say, well, look, what we'd like to do is we, we want you to, we want you to read these books and to understand how they're put together, what they're trying to achieve. Um, we, we're not necessarily making, we'll use the author's names, but uh, we don't live with the author, we don't live next door. So we won't necessarily say that she or he had, uh, had this intention, but we can say, um, just like a Xerox machine that does some copying, does this book function in a certain way? Mm -hmm. um, so we can, ask, we can ask that and we can have debates and discussions about it, but we can ask that question and probably get, up, uh, get a pretty good answer because what we can do is look at uh, how it's put together in, and in relationship to what came before it or even um, afterwards. Um, so I think that's pretty important. And that gets to the character of an artist. Well, how do you, how do you stop from getting to the, um, the how-to? Well, you do it by actually saying for starters, look, um, if, if we're turning you into what we'll call poetic engineers, what we're doing, we're, the way we're doing this is we're looking at all these works from across the arts and sciences, from the hard and biological, from the social, from the poetic and literary, as well as the um, fine arts of painting and poetry, as well as mathematics. We're talking about all these works. And what we're saying is, you're developing the scope of an artist who really will be able to place your own work and to be able to think about its effects on others. And then there's a third aspect about this. No artistry, no artistry at all takes place by itself. Yes, the, all um, poets write, Emily Dickinson writes in her own room, but she publishes ultimately and finally. Um, you've got to have a publisher. You've got to have somebody who, readers who are sympathetic. All of these are communal arts. They call you to pay attention to cooperation and sometimes intransigence, <laughs> uh, uh, resistance um, uh, uh, to, uh, to these works, but they all call for a very social response on the basis of what has been innovated and uh, not been thought of, brought forward, constructed before. So uh, I think that that's a lot of bang for your buck. And I, um, and I, think, it, uh, I think it does speak to something uh, that has been implicit, but not a focus of these programs. 
You know, that's really fascinating, Scott. I mean, I think it's just the character of turning to any kind of tradition or canon that of course we tend to look toward the past. We think of things as set, as perennial, and that's important. I think, I think you mentioned that before, that for you, you're not being exclusive in your understanding, right? There's, you're pluralistic in your understanding. But I think it really is the case, at least in my own experience with the liberal arts, that the emphasis on the newness of bringing something new into the world and that the tradition teaches us something about bringing something new into the world um, is not as emphasized, um, except maybe in the works of Hannah Arendt. She talks a little bit about it, but not really in the context of the liberal arts, right? Um, so one thing I'd like to ask you at this point is that, you know, the book, Invention, um, and also just general conversations with you over the years have shown that you are really great at discussing this in the context of a specific work. And I wonder if maybe there's a specific work you'd like to mention as a way of kind of exemplifying what you're talking about, you know, something new, or thinking about this that you said before, making potential or making a new possibility. Again, my inclination is to go backwards and actually involve more than one work. So I'll, I'll, I'll answer by skating around and around the question, whether I'll zero in, I'm not sure. Um, the term invention really most appropriately belongs in its beginning to Roman rhetoric and especially Cicero. Uh, the revival of liberal arts, classical education, so at the re revival of a kind of liberal arts education that begins at Columbia and runs through um, uh, runs through Chicago and, and St. John's, mostly tended to exclude the Romans. And you can, I don't know if this is fair entirely, but you can see it. it, it I mean, there are exceptions, okay? But um, you can see it, say, in the great books the great books collection. Invention, I spent some time thinking about invention and uh, this did lead to other aspects that I do wanna talk about which are central to this whole thing. Um, and I watched how Cicero worked in this and there were really two ways. He, he concentrated on um, developing a whole set of oratorical modes, ways. They, these are actually unlike Aristotle's propositions in either the rhetoric or the dialectic, uh, the, uh, the topics, these are um, in fact arguments. And so what, um, what Cicero's position is, is kind of everybody comes to us with arguments. You know that because people speak all the time. Hmm. Well, what's the most fundamental thing in the world for human beings, it's speech. And so if you can begin to grasp how to, to speak, um, that opens the world in a way that would otherwise not be. And it opens it to human cooperation among other things. So then later in his work, he begins to look at, um, he begins to look at some of the cultural implications and these become the kind of topics or topoi, which he begins to employ here and there. It's still more a full out. Um, and maybe you see more of that in his philosophic works but it's still more a, a kind of a full out um, uh, elaboration of arguments in forensic, deliberative, and epideptic oratory. 
this has a whole set of techne and technology to it, which I want to get back to. And I'm not sure that we command very much of that anymore to the detriment of both the humanities and the liberal arts. Then we get to uh, the Renaissance, which is beginning to um, take a, a new look at uh, the Romans, not so much the Greeks. They're looking at the Romans once again. Um, and and uh, there are historical reasons for this, uh, some of which is that an awful lot of the books had to do with the arts um, and, uh, and Roman rhetoric that were, and these were found in private libraries. It's not the line of, it's not the line of text that runs around South Africa and up through Spain into France. This is a completely different set of texts. So um, uh, what happens though, is it, it, it must be said that um, uh, uh, Euclid and, uh, and the Greek interest in geometry and then optics comes in and, and um, the two meet, so to speak, uh, through, um, uh, through the, uh, uh, through uh, um, the Renaissance and uh, in Florence and Bruno Lesci's and Alberti's work on perspective. Okay. And I, I uh, for me, uh, the Botticelli Uffizi, Uffizi uh, um, adoration became um, iconic uh, for this kind of meeting of the liberal arts with painting. So here you have an expansion. Alberti's kind of thinking of liberal arts as, as invention that is, that, that is he's aiming towards beauty, but he can discuss ugliness if he needs to. And, um, and, um, and so he's looking at how a liberal art like perspective can help to change um, uh, painting. And, and Botticelli takes this thing in this painting and by explodes it, I don't mean he gets rid of it. I mean, he makes it burst into the universe. It's simply an unbelievable painting, which ultimately, because he's a figure in that painting, he's looking out at us. And what we realize is that we not only have a perspectival painting, but given the arrangement, they're all going up to, to Mary and Joseph and the Christ child with, with uh, uh, um, Medici's kissing uh, uh, the foot of, 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 of about to kiss the foot of Christ and, and all the rest of the Medici's looking around. What you realize is that you could now, because there is perspective, because the liberal arts have changed painting, because painting has invited the liberal arts and used them in ways that nobody, Bruno Leschi, nor any optical scientist ever would have thought of you realize that everyone in that painting, you could paint that painting from every person's perspective. You could have a multiverse of paintings on just that one point. It's, it's an amazing piece. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, that, so what we have is we have invention of arguments using words and material very briefly. We have inventions of arts, harking back to, you know, honestly, uh, not only to the liberal arts, but to uh, what I would consider a kind of liberal art, poetic science. And then the third thing was in, um, in the Renaissance, especially through Bacon, you see um, persuasion of human beings um, through the Novum Organum becoming 
persuasion of nature. And um, all the devices of rhetoric are used to begin to develop uh, or outline what a scientific method would be like. And, and then that's carried forward into the future. So those are um, some of the iconic works, hardly the only ones, but some of the iconic works I would, um, I would mention as, uh, as important to understanding how much of this has changed. And, and then um, uh, one final point, uh, a lot of people I think sort of think of the liberal arts as somehow just, they stopped developing <laughs> somewhere between the rise of the, of the university, uh, the revival of them in the Renaissance and the end of them, question mark, in the German university. And that, that's just not true. Um, there's been a development of the liberal arts ever since then going on for up to this day um, with such figures as uh, Kenneth Burke, grammar, rhetoric, and motives. Um, that's psychology, using a lot of concentration on language, but it, his, his questions are about psychology and the social life. Um, Booth's rhetoric of fiction, and, and Newman's grammar of assent, and so forth. So um, uh, it's a long, 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 fruitful, generative history. And would you say that um, the arts themselves change or new arts emerge? Um, or we have arts that we didn't think of as liberal arts and then they become liberal arts? Or do you have any thoughts on that question? Um, I think they, I think they be, some become liberated arts and the, the Botticelli would maybe be an example of that. Um, I would say that the liberal arts really never did stop development. I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, I think there's a different way of treating a work via the liberal arts and treating it via a discipline. Um, I don't, I think the disciplines, I've been thinking about this a lot since the book, and I don't think I have a, the best of formulations on this, but I do think that you might've been able to argue with Hugh of St. Victor that the disciplines and the arts, liberal arts were one and the same. I'm not sure that you can, um, but that after that, what happens is they do diverge. And, um, Part of it is part of, by the way, I get, some of this should be uh, credited to Bruce Kimball, whose magisterial book on, uh, on orators and philosophers, anyone who wants to know and actually know the liberal arts should read. Um, but part of this work is, um, a part of this divergence comes with Thomas Aquinas, for whom the liberal arts do not exhaust philosophy. Um, part of this divergence comes with people like Bruni who are developing as they think of it, the possibilities of arts that haven't been examined via the traditions of the liberal arts. So Bruni joins the kind of Alberti crowd, um, which it differentiates, it uses Cicero, but differentiates itself from, from the legalistic arguments. Um, 
So I would say that now what happens is that uh, Bruce Kimball thinks that the liberal arts tradition is tied to the community and that it's very difficult for the community to, uh, uh, for a university, which is dedicated or a college, which is so often dedicated to research to be tied to texts of a community. Um, I tend to think that the liberal arts and, uh, 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 you know, full credit to, to Bruce on this, absolutely full credit, but I think there are other divergences. And uh, I think we've touched on them, by the way, in talking about both the epistemic arguments about what it is to know and the arguments about the arguments about um, uh, production and, and realizing what in a difference innovation makes. I think that, the, uh, that there is another kind of line of argument here, which is, I guess, um, fundamentally that the liberal arts are in competition with the disciplines. Um, they both borrow from each other, but they interpret each other very differently. And, um, and the consequence is that I think you could take a liberal arts approach to a disciplinary discussion about a work of art and you'll come up with different conclusions. Um, these are all principle, methodical, and so forth. And um, so in a way, the interest, the most interesting tension in American education at the undergraduate level, and to some degree, even at the graduate level, is this paralleling competition, intersection, and development of the disciplines, which unquestionably have the, the dominant position in higher education and the liberal arts. No, that's actually very helpful. And um, a quick clarifying question, because we have been talking about this distinction between disciplines and arts. And, you know, there's a part of me that just instinctively thinks, oh, I know what that distinction is. But, you know, there's nothing like asking you, um, as, as is often said of Socrates as well. You, if you're not 100% sure, just ask him. So um, what is the, uh, how do you understand this distinction between discipline and art? Well, that's part of a, almost a, lifelong investigation, I'm not sure I even have a good result. <laughs> Boy, what an admission. Anyway, uh, I think that maybe the be a better way to narrow this would be to say that the Enlightenment produced two intellectual opportunities. It produced the opportunity to pursue the sciences, which were aimed at what we should call useful reductionism. I think that's fair. So um, narrow the question. Make sure that with your methods, you can pretty much come to a, a conclusive answer, at least for that time. You know, we allow Kuhn and so forth. We allow arguments and, and disciplines to develop. Um, the humanities, I think, 
at first had an opportunity to go broad, that that was their, their area, that they could, that their purview, their, their allowed view would be a, a very broad view of the world. And that meant constant reformulation because of so much of the world that out of which you could pick a decent principle and, and do, do a broad view. Um, but I think what happened was under the influence of uh, Bildung and the German university, the humanities became dedicated to specializing. Um, you can see some of the problems with this. Um, uh, years ago, uh, um, oh, skipping on the name, um, used to be a Duke Law and English professor, uh, Stanley Fish. Stanley Fish wrote, in, wrote articles also in the New York Times. I always kind of liked Stanley Fish. I th always thought he was at least interesting and, and really was willing to shake things up. But at one point he came to the rescue of the postmodern effort, especially in, um, in, its, uh, in its tendency to become technologically impenetrable, right? You know, you, you just, um, a, a, a technical language that you simply can't uh, use, uh, except if you're a member of the club. And um, uh, Fish's argument was, well, this is what happens with every specialization. I, I you know, maybe. Um, but the only problem is that um, many of the uh, objects with which um, the humanities are concerned, and, and this ranges, this doesn't have to be just in the arts, this is in politics, this is in social organizations and so forth and so on. So uh, whether we're talking about the arts or, or society, um, and of course these converge, uh, but um, whether we're talking about either, um, the humanities is concerned with matter and materials which are accessible to most people. Most people care about their politics in some way, shape, or form, or their families. They, they, can, they go to the theater, or they go to the opera or the symphony, or to a rock concert. Um, uh, they develop uh, new, exciting little web technologies because they want to reach out to people. That's, and they want, and they want to deal with objects which if you wish, they touch and they, and which touch them. Um, and that's a big, big range. And by the way, I do think the sciences can be so approached, okay? This is not touchy-feely, but can be so approached as to share wonder and excitement. But you will be committed to uh, some technical developments, which you don't use day-to-day. -day. You use language day-to-day, -day, you use persuasion day-to-day, -day, and you try to reason about arguments day-to-day. Um, and so I think that the humanities may well have pulled themselves away from a natural base of interest and support. And I think there are some serious consequences for that. And do you think that this turn to poetics is going to help to restore what's Indeed been lost? <laughs> <laughs> if, if it's undertaken, yes. Indeed, I do. Now, um, I would think that a, a good uh, postmodernist like Barth would say, well, we've been doing po poetics all along. Here's the, here's, 
Um, an example of this is Barth's wonderful essay. It's a, it's a comic, it's a, it's a wonderful comic essay. And by the way, if you want a quick précis on how Barth, Roland Barth, does his work, just read this essay. It's a, it's a lovely essay. Um, so what he does is he takes French wrestling um, and he kind of, um, he, he takes, he doesn't say it, but he takes the poetics and he empties it out and he makes the spectacle the most, the most important uh, part, um, whereas the action becomes uh, highly conventional and nothing more than just convincing you that, that, this, uh, that this, uh, this struggle between life and death in a, in a wrestling match is just the way things are. Okay, that's, the, that's kind of the Barthian argument in a, in a very real nutshell. And it's this emptying out that he does and this, and this, um, um, uh, you know, this deconstruction that he does to try to get you to see, well, really you need to look behind this and see what's going on in the social world. Now, um, had uh, Barth stopped at that, I probably wouldn't have had any objections. <laughs> I'm not sure I, uh, I have objections to him, but I, uh, I do think that um, that was an intelligible essay. And the interesting thing about it was that if you were a humanities student and you had been engaged in liberal arts and looked at all these inventions over and over time, you would come to the mark of uh, humanistic learning and artistic making. They, they converge, they come together. Um, and uh, that mark is reuse. So what was going on in, the, um, in Barth was the same kind of emptying out that rhetoricians were doing in the ancients when they would take these poetic constructions and say, well, let's take a sentence here, a sentence there, and let's see what we can do, we can make with it. Bart was doing this exact same thing. And for pretty much somewhat of the same reasons, let's get involved in the social mix. Let's get, uh, let's, let's see what we can do to um, participate in our society and, and uh, to change it, transform it. Um, a humanist who's been trained ancient to modern been trained in the liberal arts, can see this stuff and can make it available to herself or to himself. Um, now, if you have only been trained in the disciplines, I think it's a fair question, a fair question to ask. Yes, you know your discipline will go forward and will keep changing and evolving and so forth. So there'll always be there'll always be something new, and you know you have an expertise, and only a few of you can do that expertise. And anybody who's ever seen expertise in operation has to admire it. Um, if you have any appreciation for any of this work, you must admire it, and and it, it deserves respect. And it should, I think, go on and continue. However, it's also true that this has cut us off from the public. Now, this is really, this is really obvious in a lot of different ways. And so let's be real quick about it to make it obvious. And then we'll talk about a little bit of the consequences if we have enough time. We've got to be quick, I guess, but we'll, we'll, we'll manage. <laughs> All right, so everybody, whether they do it on the web, through TV, or newspaper, and let us hope that newspapers can somehow make a comeback, or through social media, 
everybody knows about scientific discoveries and to some degree, the massive technologies of the sciences. So everybody knows about the Hubble Space Telescope. Everybody sees deep into space. Everybody knows about the atom bomb. Everybody has some idea of what an atom might be and so forth and so on. The sciences are very good at what they do produce. No, let's just say they produce as a, as a consequence of what they do. They produce technologies and products who, uh, which are well known to everybody. Who doesn't want a COVID shot after all, right? You know, um, okay. So um, the social sciences, everybody knows that there are social workers and we need them. Um, everybody knows uh, that uh, there are survey researchers and that they conduct opinion polls. All, right. All of this is quite true. And, you know, um, everybody knows that there are uh, politicians and that, um, um, how shall we say, their products are re-election. Hmm. Um, the, um, the humanities, the arts, separated from the humanities, that's easy. Um, there are all kinds of new arts, uh, which are electronically based and, and not the least of which and the most available are, are various web pages, podcasts, and so forth. Um, there are, um, there are uh, all kinds of traditional arts which are still practiced and which are drawn upon to develop new arts. Um, cinema was a new art uh, 110 years ago, 150, well, a little bit more than that. Um, so yes, new arts happen. Um, the humanities is tied to scholarship. Uh, yes, there are a few critics that go out and publish in newspapers. This, this is true. Um, but for the most part, the humanities have turned inward and they have talked to themselves and they have published. And, uh, but the unfortunate fact of the matter is, and this is just a truth, two truths. Number one, while specialty journals have proliferated, the reading of specialty journals has not. Citation studies indicate that in fact, most humanists don't read what most humanists produce, and they may not even read what is produced in their very narrow specialty. They might read it if they have to produce an article. And the reason for that is just simply because the gatekeepers are the journal editors and their journal, their article won't be produced. I'm not saying there isn't a real interest in the discipline. That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that there are these disciplinary compulsions. Okay. None of this is read by the public and none of the public knows about it. That's the most important point. Mm -hmm. They just don't know what humanists do. They get a little bit of that when, they're, uh, uh, when their daughter or son comes home from college and talks a little bit, but um, not a lot, especially if the only exposure is to general education, not even a core text education. Um, so um, the question is how can humanists uh, begin to become appreciated by the public? And of course, you know, finding various venues of publication is important and I'll, I'll get to the reason why for that in a second. 
it's not just about uh, everyone being aware of what we want to do. There's a deeper persuasive problem there. Um, uh, but I think they could also tie themselves to productions of all sorts in, that are in, that happen in colleges and universities. That, that the goal of a humanistic degree should, in, in the undergraduate level, this is different from the graduate level, but at the undergraduate level, I, I think the goal of an undergraduate liberal arts major might very well be summed up in doing a project, not necessarily scholarship by any means. Certainly the, the idea of research doesn't qualify with a lot, awful lot of things that could be done um, with a humanistic basis. So very quickly, um, just a quick illustration. You could put on a play and then you, what you could do is you could write your own, um, you could write your own uh, essay for that play. Um, and that happens all the time at, at, the, at, the, um, uh, at the level of professional theater. Why can't we start doing it much more broadly? Just a, 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 quick, um, a quick illustration uh, uh, for purposes here. But the, also the, again, uh, eco ecology is a good word here. The ecology for the reception of arguments about the value of the humanities and their importance is actually very thin. There's just not a big sea of humanistic demonstration out there um, that the public is swimming in. And the consequence is that then when somebody writes an essay, no matter how coherent and cogent it is, and I've seen a number of them, and they are coherent and they are cogent, in defense of the humanities, there's no audience for it. The only people who are reading it are, guess who? Humanists. Hmm. And, you know, um, so that's a... That's a very serious problem. And until we turn the liberal arts and the humanities, humanistic liberal arts education towards the public, I think we're still, we're going to see the kinds of closing that we've been seeing for a number of years now. Hmm. Well, that's also very helpful um, that we do need to have a more outward facing um, approach to this. As you said, it is a, it really does start to fall into the, uh, the, the cliche of the ivory tower if all we do is talk to each other and, uh, and defend what we do to each other. It might be good for bucking up morale. But as you said, there's, you know, the humanities and the liberal arts are separating themselves from everyday experiences in which we talk to each other, try to persuade each other, in which we use arguments. Um, they can be reconnected to that, to our everyday lives. Um, if I may, and you've started to answer this already, um, how does this look in the classroom for aspiring educators who are inspired by what you're saying and want to start to start to embody this in their teaching? Um, I think I'll answer this two ways that are are brief rather than elaborated. Well, th three ways. First, I'll start to say that I think unsystematically humanists, some humanists have always wanted to be connected to performances or to constructions of some kind. Sure, I know a teacher here or there that not only says they will have a debate but starts to teach their students about what constitutes actual debate and what the expected moves are and why they happen to be successful. And um, so that it's not just, you know, 
willy-nilly two groups go off working groups go off they come back and they 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 offer their observations and then who won you know it's just that it's much more uh much more uh, uh oh dreaded word formal um that and that tends to inform um the um there are I know that I found in my own undergraduate education, then it happened as a professional as well, that I tried to tie, my particular interests were in drama and theater, and I would try to tie the readings I did in English, which were never performed. Now, not all English departments are alike. This is not true of every English class and so forth and so on, but they, but you know, it, and survey courses, who knows, maybe they're gone, but um, I do not remember my Shakespeare course having a single moment where we tried, where we agreed we would try to perform a play. And I think this is really important because you begin to see what's involved. I mean, after all, um, what is a play script but instructions for acting? So you begin to see what is actually involved in an art, not just a script if you take the script as those instructions. Um, and with my students in my IH class, I switched over from kind of a thematic of political to a thematic of invention. And um, I highlighted different genres. It's important. Genres make different characteristics. If you've been at a, um, let's say a, a, a conference, which is, uh, composed of nothing but um, philosophers, when they come upon a speech, a graduation speech, they might find that it's awfully weak because it's not doing what they expect. Instead, it's doing what is necessary for a graduation speech. And you have to learn to be able to see these differences. What's expected of a tragedy? Is it just that it has good ideas or is it actually that it's going to provoke in you pity and fear or whatever other formula uh, somebody might offer, okay? And if it's going to cultivate your emotions like this, if they're going to be communal emotions, the people are actually going to really understand what it is to pity something, what it is to fear something, and out of what pity and fear can emerge, well, that, you know, you got to spend some time devoting yourself to how the play accomplishes this and why it aims at it. Um, so I think um, I tried to do with my students both, I, I tried to make them see the differences between genres. Is a history, is a biblical history the same history, kind of history, as the history that Thucydides outlines in his archeology? span I don't think so. And I think students can see that. And I think that's a formal question about the text. I think it's conceptual and I think it goes, it shapes both those different kinds of texts enormously, just enormously. Um, I also began to try to get them to see techniques that authors would use. Um, Sophocles is really good at this, <laughs> at using techniques to make sure that the audience doesn't spend too much time thinking about something, okay? This happens in Antigone and it happens in, in Oedipus. 
Um, Oedipus, of course, is the, is the murder of the father offstage. You don't spend a lot of time spending while you're in the theater. Mm. You might if you're a critic and you go on and on and on, but while you're in the theater, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about um, why uh, Sophocles didn't quite get the clues. I mean, excuse me, why Oedipus didn't quite get the clues. You spend time on what's before you, the clues he is trying to work out on. The same thing happens with Antigone. Why doesn't she think about Haman? Okay. Well, because you concentrate on what Creon is doing to Antigone, then you understand why she's not thinking about Haman. I mean, it's a Sophoclean artistic endeavor, and it helps to accomplish the tragedy, which is, in both cases, which is a greater end. So I tried to get them to see techniques of speeches and of, I mean, it was nice and, and, and even, even of the tradition, you know, I mean, you get to something like Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. And that was always at the end of our two course sequence. It wasn't a large four course program, you know, two course sequence. And um, writing from jail, writing from memory, to a hostile audience whom he's trying to persuade to come around. He's unwilling to, he's unwilling to be, to not recognize their faults, but he wants to carry them with him forward. So it isn't just about chastising them the ministers, the reverends who had chastised him. And um, what happens, of course, in the speech is that paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, King invokes this Western tradition to try to build freedom for everyone. This is what he does. Mm. And, you know, the students are looking at this and they go, oh yeah, he's talking about, oh, he's talking about Genesis and then he's, oh, he's talking about Matthew, but oh, look, he's talking, that looks a little bit like Abraham Lincoln and, and so forth and so on. And um, they finally say, you can turn to them and say, welcome to the club. That's a pretty good feeling for them, I think. Yeah, that's very helpful. And actually, if I would, if I can throw this in, um, of course, in, an undergraduate program, um, a student may take a course where they're participating in theater production or maybe something extracurricular. Um, they may take a course that has a composition element to it. But I think that if someone were to say, well, Scott, we do this already. I mean, we've got a course, an optional course mm -hmm. that students can take uh, in composition and that, you know, they're, 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 there's production there or an optional uh, art class. But of course, that's not what you're saying. You're not talking about an optional class. Um, you're talking about a whole way of thinking about invention and production as at the heart of what the liberal arts are. And I wonder if part and parcel of this, and, and this is just something that kind of popped into my mind as you were speaking. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> going off script. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Is you know when I when I, I went to a high school for fine arts and I was in a creative writing program, 
And one of the things that my classmates often bristled at was having to write Shakespearean sonnets and Spencerian sonnets. And what does this have to do with today? And I just want to express myself, which requires no meter or rhyme or of any kind, unless I really feel like it. And most of the time I don't. Um, and, you know, the teachers would try and defend this and they would defend it in the way that I think this is often defended, which is that, look, you, you need to learn the craft. Um, you need to learn these arts. And then if you want to break the rules, then you can break the rules. Um, and I think that there is something to that. Um, but I would add too that when you, you know, look at the life of say an artist like Pablo Picasso, um, and, uh, and, and many artists, when they do talk about what they're doing, it's not just, oh, I woke up one day and just instinctively thought I was going to do this side or the other, and I just went with my gut. There may be a degree in which they do go with their gut, but they actually do know what they're doing. And when they break the rules, they know why. And one thing that's interesting to me is that when I was going through this program, which was a fantastic program, by the way, but no one ever said to us, you can break the rules, but you need to defend it. You need to know why you're breaking them and you're not just breaking them just because you feel like it. And I think this is, I think what you're saying is bringing something very interesting to the table here is the idea of thinking about production and everything that you do. Um, we've discussed this before. Don't just read a dialogue, think about writing a dialogue. But if you want to write a different kind of dialogue, maybe you should, maybe that should be an assignment. Maybe you should have to write a dialogue that's inspired by, but breaks some of the rules that you might see in Socratic dialogues but you need to know why you're breaking those rules. If you're trying to do something new, why are you trying to do something new? And I don't think it has to be defended logically necessarily. I'm, I'm not talking about that, but just a bit of deliberation, intentionality being brought to the work of invention and the work of production. But when I say all this, am I understanding the spirit of what you're saying or am I departing from the spirit? I, I suppose I'm just proposing this to you to suggest is this a way, like what I'm suggesting, is this something that someone could do to authentically integrate what you're proposing in the classroom? Or do you have something different in mind? Anyway, please. Oh, no, 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 I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing that I would disagree with. Let's try to parallel this for a second, what you just said, right? Um, let's take those, there are classical schools in which Homer is read. And, um, and, you know, with 15 to 18 year old minds, good grief, I even had a, I had a, I have a nephew who was reading a small little section when he was 10 um, out of Homer, okay. With all these minds, um, I think there's something gained. I think that when they come, uh, they are variously uh, to college. They're either variously eager to, um, to reread again, or they say, no, I already did that. Why do I have to do it again? And then what happens is that they come to college and you find out that there really is a step up here. Hmm. It isn't just the scholarship. It's the penetration of the teachers. It's, and, and, and you know, getting away from the whole notion of lectures. Lectures are great but getting away from it. What it is about is those kinds of university collegiate minds that are able to turn to students and get more out of them than they thought possible. 
more than they thought was there. This is a nice Sapertian idea, by the way, um, that there's always more that you can do with a speech, that, that that's always more you can do both in making a speech and in, in being able to see it. Um, and that's, that really happens. That's a, uh, nobody disputes that, I, I think. Um, well, the same would be true, wouldn't it, of the craft argument that you were making, the art argument. I would call it art. Um, yeah, why wouldn't you want to relearn a Shakespearean sonnet at the collegiate level so that you could produce a better, even free form poem afterwards? Why wouldn't you want to do that? And why wouldn't you benefit from actually having examined a huge range of arts and sciences which are not strictly speaking within the scope of, say, English letters or English literature. Why wouldn't you want to do that? I can't think of a reason. Um, so I think that the argument that your um, that being responsible for actually learning a sonnet to the point of being able to make your own or some other poem or dialogue to the point of being able to make your own. That's a responsibility both to the text um, that came before and to yourself. And then ultimately, because there is an audience, it's to others, to your colleagues, um, whom you learn to appreciate as four years goes by. Um, it's a responsibility, therefore, to the world and not just to academics. Hmm. Um, uh, composition is not just about learning how to write a research paper. And, um, and so my, um, it, it's involved in that, and I taught it for many, many years. And I like to think I improved my students in their ability to write papers that were um, imitations of um, research, but I thought they did better when I asked them to persuade me something of something, me of something that was uh, of concern to them that they thought I ought to be concerned with. I thought they came alive. Um, so yeah, I, uh, uh, yes, I agree. Let me just also though back up and just say this. I've tried to conscientiously, I don't know if I've done it, but I've tried to conscientiously indicate that there are just all kinds of conceptions and ideas in all these arts and sciences, which must be understood in order to understand how you can make a product that, that contains some or all of them. Sophocles is conceptual. It just simply is. But his, uh, his conceptions serve the cultivation of, a, of what might be called public emotions. Um, and the arts not only convey them, they embody them. Um, they are in and of themselves in that sense that I just said. So I think it's worth, um, I think this is worth doing. I think it's worth it for us to cultivate our passions through the arts. Um, I don't think we'll be missing anything. The same is true about the sciences. The sciences are passionate pursuits. 
and I see no reason why the passions that uh, you can see it. Oh my goodness, read again, read, um, read Galileo's Starry Messenger or the two new the, the two new sciences. And if you don't think that there isn't passion involved in there, then you're missing something. And you can do a pretty good job of specifying the passages to indicate it. All right, thank you. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Um, so I wanna shift gears a little bit and get into some details of your understanding. Um, and my first question here is that, of course, we talk about the liberal arts. Um, so there is this question of liberty. And again, when we think about artistic production, we also often think about beauty. And I wanted to ask you, where do you see the role of freedom and beauty in the conception of, you know, the liberal arts understood as poetics? All right. I think I will go back to, um, I will go back to what I was indicating earlier about when I wrote that originally student, uh, the paper for students, that, which eventually became, to be honest with you, the 10th chapter of my book. Uh, um, there's an argument in, that runs from the very beginning to the very end of the poetics in Aristotle, which is made explicit in chapter nine on unity. Um, no, chapter eight is unity, explicit on chapter nine. Uh, and the argument is about possibility as philosophic. Poetry is more philosophic, he argues, than history because it tends to deal with, well, it gets translated as universals, it's generalities um, of what might such and such a person might say or do. Um, now, the argument continues through, if you start looking at that point in the poetics, he's giving you the six parts and then he starts breaking out the parts. And so the implication is that if what you wanna do is you wanna know about what the possibilities are that can be made through art in general, but specifically through tragedy and epic, then um, you start examining those and you start to see all the variabilities, all the possibilities that Aristotle saw at the time. And this is, you know, this is a, a fairly empirical treatise. Um, so sort of it's, it's always bringing up examples out of, out of the um, uh, Greek tragic works. Um, at the end, pretty sure it's chapter 25, um, he gets into an art, after he's concluded with arguments about um, language, he gets into an, a discussion, he begins to develop a discussion that's really about how objections to poetry should be met. Now I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a minor divergence here just to talk about something I learned from not only this treatise, but working with his works and a lot of other philosophers and rhetoricians. Um, that final chapter is a dialectical treatment. And it's an examination of how different sciences and critics take 
poetry and how they treat it, specifically, again, tragedy um, and its functioning. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, uh, so in a sense, if you want, we've talked about rhetoric earlier, we're talking about poetic, and now we're using what he's discovered, what he himself had discovered about poetics by going through a poetic treatment to then dialectically start talking about critics who technically speaking are outside the art, okay? Um, and what he does, but the reason why the justification for them is because what they do, you know, doing this is because they treat the art and they start making objections to the poems. Um, one of the most common is that uh, the poems aren't ethical. And the treatment is in fact forecast as early as chapter four and also in his earlier treatises, the treat of imitation. Um, the treatment is forecast by saying, well, the real problem that you have to face is how is ethics treated in the work? That is, what is it that people are actually doing? What's the nature of their ethical doings? And then how is this connected to what the work functions as? And the same thing is true of, of other objections. I, I once had a um, um, uh, more, shall we say, specialized or technical or scientific objections. I once, um, he, he comments that you can't really have a, um, um, uh, or people object to a painting, an ill-conceived picture of a painting of a hind, but it would be more of an objection if you couldn't recognize it, if, if the aim at least is, is to imitate it in some way, shape, or form. If you couldn't, if the, if the, if it wasn't assembled enough so that you could recognize. So you could have somebody like new descending a stairs. It could be all sorts of different planes, but if you don't recognize that it's a new, well then, you know, if you can't, um, maybe you've lost something there. Same, same thing here. Um, there's an objection that he treats, which is, might be called the realist objection. And this is the same thing as the his, history objection. Um, Dear poet, you are not treating people as they really are. You treat them, and, and Sophocles, he gives Sophocles' answer, which is, well, I treated them as better than they were, right? So you can see that each one of these things is kind of opening up the possibilities, and it's all aiming towards, well, you ask yourself rather generously, you ask yourself, what's the function of this work or that work? And the same would be true. You see, you could transfer this. You can easily say, well, okay, I would... Uh, take some, something like Shaw's St. Joan. Shaw's St. Joan has been argued to be a tragedy which Shaw spoiled with a comic ending. I happen to think it's a comedy with a comic ending. Um, uh, and it would have been a failed tragedy had he quit uh, before the last scene. But that, you know, be that as it may be, the, the question is, is what matters. What's the function here? And how, how, uh, how, is, how, how is this all brought together? Now, you can step outside, and Plato will do this all the time. He'll step outside and say, well, really, do we want just, is it really good for our soldiers to be weeping and crying um, when, uh, at these tragedies and so forth? Um, but you could also say, Number one, 
only the most severe restrictive regimes really do legislate against arts. But beyond that, and this is what carries the thing and makes it both an object of apprehension, an object of wonder, and an object of excitement, especially for those who are young. And the future belongs to the young. Not to, not to, certainly not to me and not to my generation. Um, when poets bring into existence something that hasn't existed before this and make it, and when it really has some innovation, whatever it be, that has made a new world for us, helped to make a new world. And that's actually true of almost all arts and sciences. We are inevitably committed to becoming what we will become through what we make. And it simply does us no good to try to ultimately and finally legislate against us. That's the kind of hope we have so that the Chinese will, Jinping will fail. But it'll take time, 25, 30, 40 years, it's horrible. Ultimately, innovations, inventions have changed who we are and will continue to do so and will open up possibilities to a, for us. So it would be best for us to know how to make them. It would be best for us to go forward and to make them. Um, I'm not a let the chips fall where they may kind of person but I have a lot more confidence in the ability of humans to make for themselves and not to have others tell them how to do it. To make for themselves and not have others tell them how to do it. So would you expand on that last thought just for a second, thinking again about the work of the teacher? Yes, the teacher will tell you how to do it, but then you're, um, how shall we say, you're, you're a proto-artist. Yes, you'll always learn from other artists when somehow, someday you become that artist. And I do mean a humanistic artist. I don't mean, um, yes, that's all I mean, is a humanistic liberal artist. Um, but in the end, thinking about your teacher in high school and, and who, by the way, I had a kind of a similar fellow in, in college, not quite the same, but, but similar. Um, when they told you to write a sonnet in an Elizabethan form, they weren't they weren't telling you how to do it step by step by step, even if they laid out the schemata and even if they laid out the IMs. Ultimately, you had to wrestle with those and put those together. And of course, you know, you ended up with something really kind of neat or something kind of goofy, um, right? Mm -hmm. 
but you're the one. Um, and it's not simply a faith, though it happens to be true, that we do actually learn by practice and experience. Practice, you know, is very close, of course, to habit. So you begin to get word associations happen with you more and more. Um, but experience is when you begin to start putting it together and you say, oh, I see what I can do. That's experience. And um, it can only begin as it does even in the, in, with your parents when they're showing you books the first, for the first time. Um, I have a grandson who is reading books. That is, he's memorized the reading, what his parents read to him, right? And now he turns the page appropriately with the end of each sentence that finishes on that page. Of course, he can't read. He's three years old. I mean, some three-year-olds can, but uh, he can see his letters and all this business. But yes, he is getting an experience and a training in words. And he's getting a sense of how something, even a page gets completed. Um, could he even talk about that yet? No, because he has, he's only building up practicums, so to speak, and those become later experiences. Someday he will, someday he will. And once in a while he surprises us. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I do think, um, I do think that teachers, um, how to put this? I think we can put a lot of faith in our students to be able to pursue a tremendous number of aspects of any text or any art. But I don't think that this can be done without affirmation and denial, without laying down a postulate here or there for examination without pointing out passages and just saying, you can, you guys out there can skip over this if you want to, but I think this is a pretty important passage. Or what do you think this work is aiming at? If you had to pull out any passages at all, could you pull out any? Of the ones that you think you would pull out, would that mean that what you just said about what it's aiming at would be would be as obvious, as clear, as that you would feel it as deeply? You would think it would have as many implications? I think all those kinds of questions can be asked and be pretty, um, uh, will go in a way that actually human is standard of taste talks about, where both the critic which is in a way what the teacher is here, the critic and the artist, they will, they will be asking the same questions and almost end up at the same place. But the critic goes off and writes praise or blame and approbation, something like that. Hmm. Um, the artist goes off, makes the work. I, I'd like to see a little bit more of our humanistic students going off making works. Hmm. Well then, um, if I may offer a, uh, a brief interpretation of your answer. So the question had to do with freedom and beauty and poetics. And I wonder if what you're saying in one sense is that freedom emerges in the fact that the artist, right? The, the student is being called upon to be the artist 
as you said, it's up to them. And even in a case thinking about my classmates of uh, yesteryear, grumbling about having to write a Shakespearean sonnet and uh, it has to be iambic uh, pentameter and we're gonna have to have this rhyming. But again, ultimately you're choosing the words. Even with that apparent straitjacket, you have the entirety of the English language. And since I'm from Canada, if you threw in a French word, you'd get away with it. Um, and you know, so you have so much at your disposal um, and there's freedom there. And in fact, not only is there freedom, obviously freedom, in fact, we encounter it and even find it terrifying, right? As, as many a writer has said, you know, staring at the blank page. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's one side. And then the other side with the beauty seems trickier. I get the impression based on your answer that you might be uncomfortable with someone saying, look, these propositions tell you what beauty is and you should honor these in your work. Um, if I may, I, I wanna draw from something that uh, Martin Heidegger says in the origin of the work of art. And, um, but to be fair, I'm gonna be interpreting him too because uh, he's not the clearest um, guy. But no, 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 I've been, I've been I don't know if I, uh, I've read, I've read this piece twice and I'm the second time I'm going through right now, almost, almost sentence by sentence. So I'll be interested. I haven't, maybe I haven't gotten as far as you have, but I'll be interested in what you have to say, please. Well, yeah, no. So I, I feel like Heidegger, Heidegger was always very dismissive of interpreters, but I'm going to take a stab anyway, but that, you know, something that he's saying about the work of art at a high level is that the work of art creates the conditions for its own interpretation. Um, and Heidegger isn't interested in any kind of, like he is almost returning to an ancient sense in which to say what something yeah. is, is also to say what the excellent version of it is. So if you wanted, you could say, well, he's not just talking about the work of art, but the great work of art. But I think for him, even that distinction, if it's a work of art, then it is a great work of art by, you know, thinking about what we mean by that word. So the work of art uh, creates the conditions for its own interpretation. And there's something to be said here in this sense. Like, it's not that necessarily anything can be beautiful. It's not that it's subjective. It's just suggesting that you don't have access to, the, to thinking about the beauty of a work outside of the work. So that when you reach outside of the work to say, this is the standard and I'm gonna apply this standard in assessing the work, Heidegger's point is you've missed it. You don't know what's going on there anymore. You have to bring yourself into the world of the work and then you encounter beauty there. And if you wanna call it objective, if you absolutely need to use that kind of language, you know, do, do what you gotta do, but it's not about subjective or objective. It's about what you encounter in the work of art. And, and if you are, if you remove from yourself your prejudices as much as possible, if you try to eliminate these external standards that are influencing you as much as you can, then you can prepare yourself to encounter what that artwork is offering to you in as, as naked and authentic a way as possible. Um, and I'm wondering if there's something about that, which may be helpful in understanding your own thoughts on beauty, because to return to the beginning, I get the impression you're uncomfortable with a didactic approach to beauty, uh, a highly theoretical approach to beauty, but I don't think you're denying that there is such a thing as beauty. Um, so I just kind of say this by way of getting, taking a deeper stab at mm -hmm. how you understand beauty and art. Uh, first and off, I do think that beauty and, uh, beauty and freedom, uh, the, the, the freedom argument is, 
it's correlative is the is is the beauty argument it's basically kind of based on that um the um uh as to heidegger um i both have sympathy with that kind of argument and i don't um i have sympathy because it turns attention to the work um you know i mean one of the reasons why deconstructionists were dissatisfied, say, with formalism, was simply that they were constrained by it. And so they wanted to go talk about something else, right? You know, um, all the work that the, all the things that the work erases, well, that's everything but the work. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, one understands that. And, and there's no reason, by the way, we should also say at the same time that there's no reason why you can't be an, an ethical, scientific, and so forth critic. These are simply, the business I brought up with Aristotle is simply poetics answering as poetics would, which then goes to, which then goes to um, your Heideggerian and um, kind of authentic perception argument, because that's what's at stake. Here's the here's the work. It offers itself in its own terms. Here, here Van Gogh's shoes. You know that that kind of business. They offer themselves. Um, can you take, can you take, um, can you take in the beauty of that? Well, yes, but I think that no matter what, that means you're investigated, you're invested, excuse me, you're invested into a, um, real investigation as to how this thing is put together. That's what beauty is. It's something that's well put together and, and makes us go, <gasps> right? Mm -hmm. Gives us awe, wonder, and we wonder why, why it is beautiful. Why we're struggling with beauty. And then we find an answer. And it's even then, when, when you find the answer, it's not the analytic answer that matters. It's rather that you realize how beautiful the object really actually is. All of that, I think, is true. Um, but I don't think that I don't think that Aristotle wrote his poetics or Hume his standard of taste, making that kind of argument. Um, Aristotle's at a, argument is not a at the end, is not a tragic argument, it's a poetic argument. It's an argument, poetics argument. It's an argument about how that is a, is a consequence of having gone through an analysis of all kinds of different tragedies and seen what there is out there and then been able to respond to a wide variety of critics who, who have something to say about tragedy. And same is true of human standard of taste. Um, part of the one objection to the Heideggerian argument is its rejection of of a form matter argument. And I mean, I understand the, the discomfort he has with it. The idea that whether the idea is true or not, and, and one wants to be careful about this, that the Romans mistranslated authentic Greek perceptions of art. I mean, that, you know, maybe. Um, uh, but um, uh, one understands that what he's, he is saying is that, as Kenneth Burke would say, there's a terminological screen right, through which we go, which we pass through it. 
and one inherits this in one's education and, and even in, in uh, perhaps in habits with people who are like, uh, are engaged in like activities. So um, there you are, you're stuck with it. Um, and he's trying to clear that away. But I'm not sure that that excavation project um, is the right way to go. I'm a constructionist. And so I'm interested in the difference between Sophoclean and Shakespearean tragedy. And I think I'm still looking at both their tragedies and their beauties when I'm interested in that. Um, I'm interested in the senior who has to write a Shakespearean sonnet and is wrestling with doing that and tries to write the best sonnet that he can. I wanna see that sonnet and I wanna say, you know, Matt, let's look at the beginning of the year when you wrote one of these things. Hmm? That's an improvement in artistry, an improvement in beauty. And I think it's well worth being able to talk about and see. And I don't think we've would diverge from it if we said, well, you know, really, you had no freedom in your IMs before, but look, now you've got some. All right. Am I making any sense? Yeah, yeah, I think you that makes a lot of sense, actually. And would it be fair to say this, then, that you would grant that someone can see a work of art and be struck by its beauty, um, but perhaps their appreciation of its beauty is deeper um, when they reflect upon or even engage in the activity of production itself? Yeah, but let's go a little bit further. Hmm. I agree with you. Let's um, let's take just what you were talking about, which is almost in a sense, I, I take it a bit of a Humean argument, but let's back it up a little bit. There's an argument in Aristotle's fourth chapter where um, what he's doing is he's talking about how artists kind of um, developed over time to become tragedians and to become um, uh, comedians. Um, epic artists and mock epic artists. And, and there's this one passage where um, uh, it gets translated somewhat differently. So, you know, you can have some controversy about it, uh, where basically he, it's at the, it's in the argument, it's as it were, it's at the historical moment, so to speak, when tragedy is going to emerge. And, and what the artists are doing is they write these things and then they're able to say, this is that, or the audience is able to say, this is that. It doesn't make any difference, okay? Um, so in other words, the implication here is that they might or might not have had a purpose to write a tragedy. After all, there was a time when tragedy didn't exist, right? Okay, so, so they might or might not have, but that they got to the point where they recognized what they were doing even after they did it, which implies then the question of where can you push it? And then all that all that stuff in the fifth chapter comes out about the various developments of Aeschylus and Sophocles and so forth added to the development of tragic drama, okay? So it really is a question of, it really is a question of looking at it and improvements. You can see where this goes. This goes to your notion of appreciation. 
So here you are, yeah, you're undoubtedly by experiencing a wide variety, and this is sort of the human argument, by experiencing a wide variety of different arts and also examples of arts in your mode that you are interested in pursuing, you, your appreciation expands. And here's the kind of interesting thing. This is where both the artist and the critic in a way go in somewhat similar veins, sometimes. If the nascent artist, if the artist who is developing a nascent art, uh, if the artist who has, has begun to appreciate those earlier developments trying to do something new, if they all sort of reach a point where what they say is, oh, I can do this, I can do that. I can, I can push this a little bit this way or push this a little bit that way. And if the critic goes along with them, right, up to that point, well, so what's the difference between the critic and the artist? Well, the critic ends up writing praise or blame, or maybe, you know, goes off and does a social history, who knows what, right, and says, this work is to be praised or blamed because it helps to develop or retard a social history of some sort or a politics of some sort, but nevertheless it's to be praised or blamed. The artist instead writes the work. Nevertheless, each of them is in fact writing for the future and maybe even more so to some that, yeah, they, they are just both writing for the future. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's not simply that they, 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 they both want audiences to read or to appreciate, to view, to see, and so forth. Um, they both want to see new productions go on. That's the implicit in either the criticism or the work that they just produced. Nobody's claiming this is the end all and be all of this art or this mode of criticism. So it's always pointing, the, the fact of the matter is that it's always pointing to the future. Um, the question, the real question is I think for humanists and humanistic liberal arts education is can we produce so that people see that? So that there will be a sufficient, uh, a sufficient environment as it were of humanistic liberal arts productions that people will know and want to have a future for these. Thank you, Scott. So I have one last question for you. Um, you have spoken before about techne, and of course this makes me think about technology, and you've said that there's a sense in which we don't command techne. And I think I detect in this uh, a concern, right, about um, how we encounter technology, how we, how we think we're using technology, or what our relationship with technology is. And I'd be grateful if you could talk a little bit about technology and how you're understanding, like maybe problems with it and how your understanding of poetics may respond to those problems, please. Okay, I think what I, uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bend this slightly, uh, Matt, because um, time is short and there is a point I wanna get across, which was the less the worries about technology. I think I, I addressed that earlier to, to a fair degree. Um, but I think the one thing I do wanna say is that I do think in our cortex programs, there's a situation that's very akin to that that we see in at the end of Aristotle's sophistical um, uh, refutations, where what he says is that the way um, he's, he's summing up his whole effort 
on dialectic and uh, logic. And he's saying, well, we produce these arts. And part of this, the way the arts were produced was that um, Gorgias and his colleagues would give out speeches. And then what they would do is the students would read them and the teachers assumed that the arguments fell out in all the materials that they gave out. Well, of course, what was missing in this was the idea that you could invent or make new arguments, right? They're already there. So the, um, the, there's a little bit of that in the, court, in the cortex situation, because what we do is we, we put out the books and we, we read them and we develop um, conversations in class. And I have no objection to this. It's an absolutely essential part and parcel of the whole thing. And it's a beauty. It is a real beauty. But what we don't do is we, I discovered by going through ACTC proposals um, over a period of five or six years, and I knew this from, I got it in my head from just watching what had been done prior to this. Um, there, um, there were very few, if any, um, discussions or proposals for papers that were say, you know, there'd be uh, about the actual disciplinary or artful developments of the liberal arts. Yeah. So yes, you would get the Republic and you would get the Apology, but only rarely the Phaedrus and never the Gorgias, okay? You would get the Nicomachean Ethics and the Politics rarely on interpretation, never the rhetoric. And I've already spoken about the poetics. You would never read the Roman um, rhetoricians and what they had to say, or Isocrates. Uh, you, you, I could go on in, up in through the 20th century and all the developments of the liberal arts. And these are all technical, technical treatises, but they really are about freedom and being able to build something and make something. They really are about new inventions in arguments. They really are about being able to perceive. That's what grammar is about. It's about perception. And you know what is at stake is here are things like uh, the origin of our languages and so forth. They're really about tight arguments. That's both what logic and dialectic are about. Dialectic is about examining the bases of, of our sciences. And there are all these techniques, these topoi, these distinctions about the introductions and bodies and conclusions of text, all of this stuff, and it is rarely, rarely um, taught or discussed. And it's certainly, there have been some efforts at ACTC to do this. And we did a project on rejuvenating and re reinventing the liberal arts and reading across all the 20 centuries of this. However, um, there are not universally wide um, programs to teach these arts in our colleges of arts and sciences. And if you want the humanities to have a technology, and they do, um, the individual disciplines are not shared, but these are universal arts and they go across and they can be shared, they can be identified and people can understand them. And that's the important valence in beginning to get a public to understand what it is we do. All right, well, thank you very much, Scott. I really appreciate this. I found this to be uh, an immensely insightful and also intellectually stimulating talk. You know, um, it's interesting that you're talking about production. And of course, uh, there's also such a thing as the production of ideas. And sometimes uh, listening to someone talking about the importance of novelty and bringing something new into the world may bring something new, at least into your mind. And, uh, and you mentioned this also before in the case of teaching the students and bringing them further than they think they themselves can go or discovering things that they never thought were possible for themselves. Um, so I'll, I'll conclude our, our, um, our discussion here. And Matt, let me thank you. You're a terrific interviewer.
You really oh, no, thanks, anybody, would be, anybody would be grateful for how thoroughly you think through the issues at hand and the questions you ask and how much you've thought about them yourselves. It's just, it's terrific to be in a dialogue with you. It really is. Oh, thanks so much, Scott. I really appreciate that. I, you know, I was about to conclude by talking about how gracious you are and, um, and what a blessing it is uh, that you've been in this work for so long and that you've now published this book and you've shared your, your profound insights with us. And I want to again encourage uh, our listeners to pick this book up. Um, invention, the art of liberal arts uh, with uh, Respondeo Books. So J. Scott Lee, um, it's, it's such a great pleasure to have this time with you. Thanks again so much, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. Take care. Take care.